What an honor. What an honor to be back with our second family. And as tempted as I am to want to reminisce and tell you how much I love you, and I do, I don't want to be an emotional mess. So I'll just tell you that I love you. My family loves you. This place will always be a very special place to us. I thought about coming in as we were building this building and writing a verse of Scripture right up under here. Y'all remember when we did that and baptizing both of my children right up here in this baptistry. So thank you for the honor, Jacob, of being back here. And for those who've been here a long time, wouldn't Brother Rastus be proud? Wouldn't Brother Rastus be proud that God is still calling out young men to preach His glorious gospel from this place? Wouldn't Brother Rastus be proud to have one of his own, Jim Perdue, uh, one of his preacher boys here leading and shepherding this church? And then James Dollar, my brother of many years, I moved north and he moved south. Wouldn't Brother Rastus be proud? Another son of second here leading worship and to see Bryce up here leading worship. Some of you remember Bryce on a towel at the beach during our beach retreats years ago. So it's great to be here. Today is a, a great day. I love Jacob Giles. For many years, I say many, for a number of years, I have said he is one of the most anointed preachers of any age I've ever heard. Had Jacob come and preach at the last church that I pastored before this church and had two folks profess the Lord and follow him in baptism that day, Today's a little day of a mixed emotions for me. Jacob knows this. I'll just share the secret with y'all. We announced this morning a student pastor that we'll be calling, and Jacob knows that for years I prayed and dreamed, God, maybe you'd let that be Jacob Giles. I'd love to partner with him. But God had a different plan for Jacob and Kinsey, and God has a different plan for Airline Baptist Church. So I'm charged tonight to give the, the charge to the church, the charge to the church. But I just wanted you to know how much I love this young man and how much I believe in him and his ministry. The relationship between pastor and church is it's almost like a marriage. You love each other and you encourage each other even when you don't deserve it. What does the scripture say that is expected by the church for her pastor. So take your copy of God's Word if you have it and turn to Ephesians chapter number 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and I'll just be brief and walk you through what the Scripture says here. Number one, I believe God expects the church to recognize His gift. Now if I was preaching this at my church, I'd feel funny saying that, but the Scripture says pastors are a gift to the church. Ephesians 4.11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. So pastors are a personal present from King Jesus to the church. I'm not trying to be self-serving. I'm just telling you what the Word says. And I don't know if any folks from your new church are here, but you are a gift to them. And although you've only been there a little bit of time, I'm sure they recognize the great gift that God has given them. Number two, write this down. God expects the church to be equipped for ministry too. We're not the super-hired holy men. Our job is not to do everything, but based on the authority of Scripture, Ephesians 4.12, the responsibility, speaking of pastors, is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So this is not a spectator sport for you to come and sit and say, bless me now if you can, preacher. No, you are to be a part of it. We're to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So God doesn't expect Jacob to do everything, but to equip those who will serve with him. Number three from verse 13 says, This will continue until we all come to such unity. Such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. Number three, God expects unity in His church. God expects unity in His church. For years, some of my pastor friends would tell me when I served here, Mike, you're spoiled. 
Second Baptist is not like every other church. You're spoiled. You're blessed at Second Baptist. You know what I found out when I left here? I was spoiled and I was blessed at Second Baptist. This is a special, special place to have unity in Christ that we have here. That is the expectation of God. You can't support your pastors until there's unity in the church. Number four, God also, also expects maturity in His church. God expects maturity in His church. I think those things go hand in hand. Verse 13, why? That we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. As we strive for spiritual maturity, there's going to be unity. There's going to be love. Number five, you know what else God expects from the church? From 1 Timothy chapter 5, God expects the church to protect her pastors. God expects the church to protect her pastors. You are in the spotlight now, Jacob. You have been for years as a Little League World Series player in preaching, but now you're on staff. you got a bigger target on your back, and it is the job of the members of the church to protect the pastors. And I like to say, listen, we won't believe half the stuff they tell us about y'all if y'all don't believe half the stuff they tell y'all about us. Is that a deal right there? Your job is to protect them, to protect the pastors, to protect us. 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. That comes from the one I just told you, from that maturity, that unity in the church. And finally, number six, we're going to do this here in a few minutes. God expects the church to pray for her pastors. God expects the church to pray for her pastors. In Acts 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church. With prayer and fasting, they turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. One of my dear church members just recently pulled me aside and she said, Pastor, do you notice I'm at the altar praying every Sunday? And I said, yes, ma'am, I've noticed that. She said, I asked the Lord to show me what can I do to bless my pastor? How can I bless my pastor the most? And she said, God told me to pray for your family. So every time I see Anita at the altar, she was in the prayer room this morning, that's why she wasn't at the altar, but it blesses me because I know she's praying for my family. You pray for Jacob and Kinsey. Young couple just getting started, you can call them, you can text them, you can encourage them, but the greatest thing we can do for Jacob and Kinsey, the greatest thing you can do for Pastor Jim and Miss Stephanie or any of us is to pray for your pastors. So thank you, Jacob. I'm honored that you'd let me come back and share tonight. I can't wait to see what God's going to do. And I've accepted the fact that God has a different youth pastor for me. But I'm not giving up. Maybe one day he'll let us serve him together somewhere. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much, Mike. I appreciate you being here tonight. I know Jacob does. And on behalf of Jacob and Kenzie, I just want to say thank you so much. That's the quickest sermon I've ever heard you preach, man. He told me, he said, I won't be longer than 10 minutes. Man, it felt like 30 seconds. That was incredible. Not that it was fast, it was good. So I uh, just want you to know that. Hey, Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7, uh, my task tonight is to challenge the candidate. Mike has told the church what the responsibility of the church is in an ordination. We see that in the book of Ephesians, the book of Acts, 1 Timothy, as well as many other places throughout the New Testament. And I promise tonight to be brief as well, but also uh, my prayer is to be encouraging. One of the most incredible privileges of a pastor is to watch people called to the ministry uh, out of the Lord's church where he shepherds and serves. Second Baptist has an incredible history of seeing young men and young women called to ministry and to mission. 
I tried this afternoon to begin to list the number of people and the number of places uh, where Second Baptist boys and girls, preacher boys, missionary girls, pastors' wives, and many, many others are serving. And uh, honestly, um, I couldn't even begin to name a fraction of them because literally at this moment, there are men and women serving the Lord around the globe who grew up right here at Second Baptist Church. It's because of the faithful prayers of the people of God and the hand of the favor, the anointing of God on this church. And I, I speak from personal experience because I can remember in 1999 when I was where you are, 20 years ago, sitting on the front row, wide-eyed, looking up, trying to figure out what they were about to say to me and what was about to happen in my ordination service. February of 1999, it's been 20 years now, 20 years. So Jacob, tonight, I want to talk to you about one simple truth, and my task, church, this evening is to challenge and to charge the candidate for ordination, and that is Jacob. Jacob, I want you to remember this. Nothing is more important than having God's hand on your life and your ministry. Nothing. Nothing is more important than having God's hand on your life and your ministry. And I'm not saying that just because you're called to serve the Lord to church or to be a pastor to church or a senior pastor or a staff pastor, whatever. I would say that for every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing is more important than having the Lord's hand on your life and on your ministry. And when I say God's hand, I hope you understand that I'm saying His favor, His blessing, and His anointing, His approval, God's stamp of approval on your life, that when you walk, you're walking with God. When you serve, you're serving for Him. When you preach, you're preaching in light of His goodness and under His power. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9, listen to how Ezra is described. The good hand of His God was on Him. I've tried long and hard to think about a way that I would like to be described. As I preached this morning, we ought to live with the end in mind. And so what would I want someone to say about me one day when it's all said and done and when I'm the one in the casket, when someone else is preaching my funeral and all of these things come to my mind. I want them to be able to say I was a faithful pastor and a faithful husband and a, and a loving father who pointed his kids to Jesus. But ultimately, it all boils down to this, was God's hand of favor on my life. The most important thing for you, the good hand of his God was on him. I'm not sure there's a more powerful description in the Bible of how God can use a person. And I want you to notice this. What happens in verse 9 there at the end is a result of verse 10. What happens, the good hand of God was on him is a result, because right at the beginning of, of verse 10, there's a word for. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Why was the good hand of God? Why was the favor and the blessing? Why was the anointing of God on Ezra's life for? That's a purpose clause. It's a preposition that indicates purpose. Why? Because he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. 
And so if this is describing why God's hand of favor was on Ezra's life, then there's something I want to know about what's happening in verse 10. And there's something we need to know about what's happening in verse 10. And there's something you, Jacob, need to know. Because if this means that God's hand of blessing is upon him, then I want to live that way. I want to walk that way. Why did God bless Ezra in his ministry? How can I have that same type of blessing on my life? First of all, by studying God's word. Ezra had set his heart. I love that phrase, set his heart. To me, it sounds stronger than decided or determined. It sounds stronger than purposed or desired. He set his heart. Man, he had the compass, and his compass was the Word of God. And he set his heart and his life by the Word. So how can the favor and the anointing of God be on your life? It begins by studying the the Word of God. He says to study the law of God. If your calling is to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then your calling is to be a minister of the Word. If you're called to serve as a pastor, shepherd in a local church, this is your textbook. This is the manual for everything that God will call you to do. You can't separate being a minister of the gospel and being a minister of the Word of God. If you're going to be a minister of the Word of God, then you must be a student of the Word of God. This doesn't stop with your college degree. It doesn't stop with your seminary degree. It doesn't stop with your PhD that I know you have in mind one day. And it doesn't stop with all of the other degrees and the letters that you can get after your name or the REV letters you get before your name. None of that matters if you're not a student of the Word of God. And a devotion to the Word of God is continual throughout your life. I knew a lot of guys in seminary that studied the Word because they had a test on Friday. Instead of studying the Word to get to know the God who authored it. Measure everything by the standard of the Word of God. You cannot evaluate churches on preachers and books based on their popularity or appeal. You can't choose programs based on their pragmatic effectiveness alone. You can't judge sermons based on their entertainment value. You must judge everything you do by the standard of the Word of God. And the only way to do that is to know the Word and to study the Word and to immerse yourself in the Word of God. It should go without saying But how are you going to know the Word of God if you don't spend personal time pouring over Scripture in daily quiet time? How are you going to know the Word if you don't devote your life to spending time with God in His Word? Not not for sermons, but for your soul. The hand of God was on Ezra's life. Why? He studied the Word. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, secondly, by obeying God's word. Ezra was blessed because he obeyed God's word. It's not enough to know God's word. We have to obey God's word. It's not enough to hear what he says. We've got to do what he says. James says that faith without works is dead. In other words, knowledge without obedience is futile. When we find truths and principles in the Word of God, it's our duty then to seek to live out those truths and live out those principles. It's not enough to get up and preach the Word of God. We have to obey the Word of God. Never stand up to preach a sermon in the pulpit that you haven't already applied to your life and yourself. 
Never preach a sermon and lay a standard before people that you're not trying your dead-level best to live out yourself. Now, I know your mom and dad are here, and they think a lot of you. Kenzie's right next to you, so I don't want to burst their bubble, but we know you mess up. We know you're not perfect. You're not going to be a perfect preacher. There's no such thing. The good news is there are no perfect churches, and there are no perfect church people either. And so the reality is, I'm not calling you to be a perfect preacher. And I'm not calling you to stand up and preach the word and say, I live by everything in this book because we are scarred, we are messed up, we are stressed. We are, I mean, we're, we're as sinful as anyone else. But preach the, ter- the sermon to yourself before you preach it to your church. Apply that standard to your life. And can I be honest with you, Jacob? I'm not telling you something you don't know. The world is full of fakes. The world is full of phony people filling the pulpits, especially in America. Guys who can stand in the pulpit and give a rousing sermon. Guys who can move crowds emotionally. Guys who can talk a good game, but sadly, men who have no integrity. Who've compromised in every area. In a world of fakes, be authentic. Practice what you preach. Obey God's word. Don't just preach it. Do what it says. And finally, by teaching God's word. How can I have the favor of God on my life? By studying God's word. By obeying God's word. By teaching God's word. The Bible says here that Ezra taught the statutes and the rules in Israel. That was his job. He taught the word of God to the people of God. How can I have the favor and the anointing of God on my life, then I have to be a pastor, a preacher, who teaches the Word of God. Jesus tells us in the Great Commission that we're called to make disciples. A huge part of making disciples is, it's found in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the ends of the earth. And so we're called to teach and preach the Word of God. Of God. Ezra taught the people, I love this, the statutes and the rules of the Lord. Your job as a preacher is not to give your opinion or to shed light on the latest news of the day. You're not called to be a political commentator or a talk show host. You're not called to be an entertainer. You are not called to drop psychotherapy on a congregation. You are called to preach and teach faithfully God's never changing word. That's the calling that God's put on your life. You will never go so far as to move past this book. I don't care if you preach for the next hundred years. This is your textbook. And it always is fresh. It's always powerful. It always applies. The Spirit always speaks through His Word. This tells us what we're to do. We are to teach. And then it gives us a lesson plan for our teaching. Teach. Preach. Proclaim. And what's the lesson plan? The statutes and the rules of the Lord. He taught the statutes and the rules in Israel. So whatever it is, wherever God's called you, you teach and preach the statutes and the rules of the Lord, the Word of God in Israel. Wherever that is, right now that's Pensacola, Florida. Wherever God has you and whatever He's called you to do, you preach and teach His Word. Jacob, you know this. We've spent a lot of time together over the last few years reading Tony Evans' book that literally is multiple inches thick. 
theology, spending time together, talking about life and talking about getting engaged and then being engaged and getting married and then getting married and moving off and God's call on your life. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm telling you something I want you to remember. We don't need more entertainers. We need men of God who can communicate the word of God effectively because they've been immersed in the truth of God. And to the church, can I just be honest with you, and I'm not saying this because I'm your pastor. In fact, I hesitate to say this because I'm your pastor, but I just want you to hear me. To the church that actually, when you actually have a pastor that spends time studying and pouring over the truth of Scripture to stand and proclaim the Word of God behind this pulpit or any pulpit, when you have a pastor that spends time studying the Word of God so the Word of God might be proclaimed value that more than you value those popular preachers on television that don't give you any truth from the word of God this is where the value's at right here psalm says it's more precious than silver one thing you should be more concerned about than anything else in your life is the good hand of God on your life Am I walking in the favor and the blessing and the anointing of God? Do you notice how the blessing of God and His favor are tied to His Word? Do you notice that? The Spirit of God, the Word of God, they're indispensable, they go together. The blessing of God and the favor of God tied to His Word. Listen to what R.A. Torrey said. You may talk about power, but if you neglect the one book that God has given you as the one instrument through which he imparts and exercises his power, you will not have it. You may meet, read many books and go to many conventions, and you may have your all-night prayer meetings to pray for the power of the Holy Ghost, but unless you keep constant, close association with the one book, the Bible, you will not have power. And if you ever had power, you will not maintain it except by the daily, earnest, intense study of this book. 99 Christians in every hundred are merely playing in Bible study, and therefore 99 Christians in every hundred are mere weaklings when they might be giants, both in their faith, in their life, and in their service. What's our source of power? It is the Word of God as the Spirit of God speaks and works. And so a reminder for you, Jacob, tonight is that everything in your ministry must center upon, be based upon, and grow out of your commitment to the Word. And wherever you are and whatever you're doing, if you're doing that, you're doing what you've been called to do.